Hello and welcome. You're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast that aims to critically discuss all aspects of the current UK education system. With the support of listeners and guests, we want to find out what's going well and what really requires improvement. I'm Lee, I'm a history teacher based in Bristol and a union rep. And in this bumper episode of Requires Improvement, we are treating you to a stacked lineup of guest interviews from Bristol Transformed. So, just to briefly explain what Bristol Transformed is, it's a three-day festival of politics and culture featuring guests from all over the UK and abroad who gather in Bristol to discuss and debate exciting ideas emerging from the left. It's a great event featuring panels, workshops, live podcasts and the obligatory Saturday night rave. Bristol Transformed is inspired by the World Transformed Festival, which is a national event that takes place alongside the Labour Party conference each year. Bristol Transformed is planned and rung by a group of volunteers, of which our co-host Charlie is one of the organisers. On behalf of all the hosts of Requires Improvement, I would just like to give a shout out to everyone involved for making us so welcome at this year's event. We really enjoyed doing these interviews and getting involved. If you're at a loose end around March or April of 2021, you should defo put this in your calendar. Bristol Transformed also put on one-off events in Bristol throughout the year, which you should keep an eye out for. So, because this is such a big episode, I'm going to list now who is featured in the interviews. We obviously hope you'll listen all the way through, but if you want the timestamps for these interviews, they will be in the episode description. Coming up, we have a chat with Professor Madhu Krishnan and Vicky Canning, who are Bristol-based academics and activists, talking to us about colonialism in the education sector, as well as a little bit about the recent university strikes. This is followed up by a quick interview with Riley Quinn, host of Trash Future podcast about Bristol's history and the podcasting lifestyle. And then we are treated to a conversation with Requires Improvement co-host and friend of the show, Nick, talking to us about his workshop on how to talk about politics with your neighbour. Then, to round things off, we have two larger interviews, firstly with union organiser Matt Hollinshead, where we discuss how to practically go about building union power in your workplace. And then we were very fortunate to sit down with journalist Sarah Jaffe about talking to us about teacher unions and strikes in the USA, and the importance of authentic community engagement in building an education reform movement. Like I say, uh, links to everyone and everything we'll mention will be in this episode's description. So without further ado, I'm going to drop you into our first interview. Cheers. Um, I'm going to ask our first two guests to introduce themselves. I'm Vicky Canning. I'm a senior lecturer at uh, Bristol University, but I also work in sort of activist capacities with State Watch and various organisations. And also I'm an associate director of Border Criminologies. Uh, hi, my name is Madhu Krishnan. I'm a professor at Bristol University. Um, I am also an activist and organiser. Lovely guys. So um, I'm going to start with Madhu because um, you I've just listened to your panel on uh, colonialism and well, I've forgotten the formal title. It was Bristol and Empire. Bristol and Empire. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a history teacher and uh, on, our, on our podcast, we like to consider issues of curriculum, how the teachers bridge these divides and how do we make schools better at raising consciousness on these issues. Um, so there was one thing that 
stood out from your contributions was about the dearth of knowledge that you seem to find in the students that meet you very late in their education. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's something that I've noticed over the years, and I think it's actually something that has gotten worse um, as time has gone on. I have been a teacher in higher education in this country for 10 years now. And one of the things I've really noticed is the way in which the, the school's curriculum fundamentally shapes our students' worldviews really well into adulthood. Um, and so one of the things I was discussing on the panel is this experience that I've had um, where I might be teaching a seminar of third-year students. So, you know, they're kind of all 21, 22, about to leave university. They're adults. They're grown. And they know nothing about, for example, the transatlantic slave trade. Um, so we might be reading a novel uh, because I... I'm a professor of literature, and there might be some sort of reference to something from, from the slave trade, and I might say, okay, so this image, what does it remind you of? And it'll be crickets, and then I'll kind of explain things. And, you know, I find it really shocking, and the few students who do know a bit about it kind of say, well, wasn't that something that happened in America? And it's something I've been talking about quite a lot with my students right now, because I find it so disturbing, where they say that they might get, like, a week or two where they learn about plantation slavery in America, but that's it. And all they learn about Britain is that Britain abolished slavery. Slavery, and they don't learn anything about Britain's central role in that. And, you know, they know even less about colonization. So, for instance, we might be reading a novel by Ngugi Wa Thiongo, the Kenyan writer, and I might say something about the land and freedom struggle, which the British called Mau Mau. They've never heard of it. They didn't know Kenya was a settler colony. They didn't know about the expropriation and dispossession of land by British settlers of the Kenyan people. And I just think these are really basic gaps in knowledge. And it's, it's difficult because one of the things we were talking about is how these gaps in knowledge aren't just about your education. It's not just about catching a literary reference. It's about your worldview. And it's why, you know, we have people in power now who claim we shouldn't be ashamed of colonialism. We shouldn't be ashamed of empire. It was a great and glorious thing. Britain's always been so great. But it's because of these gaps in knowledge that that sort of ignorance is perpetuated. Um, I understand this is also something you've encountered in your professional experience as well. I've been absolutely, I think flabbergasted is the term that I would use, where I am running, trying to run modules. So this discussion about decolonizing the university, um, that can't be done unless we decolonize prior to university. So, for example, I've started two new modules, one's on globalization, crime and harm, one's on conflict, um, violence and forced migration. So I'm going in to teach people on things that I assume there is a, a basic level of knowledge of transatlantic slavery, for example, being one. Another being, um, for example, Northern Ireland, when we talk about, you know, mm. colon coloniality of power, which I think, Madhu, you've you've mentioned. We, we are actually, um, these gaps in knowledge aren't just problematic. It's not just a failure of education. It's actually dangerous. Um, what it does is it replicates ideas that there are just some areas of the world that don't work very well. We are, uh, you know, we've, in inverted commas, civilised countries. We've had industrial revolutions. No recognition of what was taken from, for example, the African continent to gain the industrial revolution. Um, nothing in the, the context. I mean, the, when I say dangerous at the minute, for example, using the Northern Irish um, question. Um, the, the thing that kind of comes with this is, 
Northern Ireland becomes re represented as a thorn in the side of, for example, moving forward with Brexit. No recognition of the um, occupation of Northern Ireland um, by, for example, the British Army. My students uh, recently, you know, they didn't know who Gerry Adams was. They hadn't known what the hunger strikes were, what um, the, the blanket protest was. They hadn't known what Bloody Sunday was. And this is really, I mean, but these are not just, this isn't just a gap in knowledge. It's a rewriting of history. Mm -hmm. It's as if there's this kind of country or these various countries around the world that just don't move on, you know? Um, they've never been able to move on. They're just stuck in the past with no recognition of the powers that be, the, the you know, imperialistic powers that have have actually, you know, impacted so deeply and gravely in these countries. And what then happens then is, and um, so for, for people who are listening earlier, Maddy pointed out what I think is a really important point where, you know, we don't want to necessarily offend um, by making points about, um, the, you know, colonies. But actually, there's no recognition that we can be offended. And the other week, you know, I, I really felt offended because I thought it's a privilege to not know this because I've not had the opportunity to not know about conflict in Northern Ireland. You've not had the opportunity to not know about the impacts of imperialism and racism because we actually grow through it and we have to. So it, it creates divides of consciousness and this then whenever we do get to things like discussions and reparations or the you know the backstop with Brexit these look like just irrational beings who won't let go of the past without recognising that the past, that the hist history is in the present. Yeah. And it's replicated constantly in the present. Yeah. It's replicated through borders. It's replicated through racism. It's replicated through um, the, the lack of regard for, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, uh, uh, Northern, uh, Northern Irish struggles. All of these things continue. Fantastic, guys. Um, so what should teachers particularly secondary primary level what should we be doing about this what concrete actions would you guys like to outline what would you urge our listeners to do in their daily lives i mean i think it's really difficult for teachers i i really feel for school teachers in our present moment um i think it's it's not a great job to have at the moment it's truly doing you know the good work but against all sorts of struggles and odds and I think it's definitely killing me yeah and I think particularly in this this marketized climate of education where education's just about metrics and outcomes and let's give a seven-year-old a standardized test and then we'll judge the teachers based on this because that's what learning is um it's it's a struggle and you know I I'm hesitant to suggest anything that's going to create more work Work for educators in this country because already we're all overworked at every level and I think school teachers in particular but I think that one of the things we do need to think about is is self-educating first of all educating ourselves about the reality of coloniality you know as Vicky was saying the way in which so I say coloniality and not colonialism coloniality is a term that was coined by a Latin American theorist called Anibal Chiano and and he uses the term specifically because it doesn't have the false historical break that colonialism has so instead of saying that was during colonialism, now it's over. We talk about coloniality and the coloniality of power because that persists in the ways that Vicky was just discussing. So, you know, educating ourselves about that, educating ourselves about 
the persistent inequities that exist in the world, educating ourselves about global histories, global intellectual movements, moving beyond a kind of blinders on approach to knowledge where we think that there's only one real knowledge and that's kind of post-enlightenment European thought and only this is real science and only that is real history, to have a kind of broader and richer worldview where we can recognize other knowledges and traditions and try to make spaces for that in the classroom. I mean, I think it's tricky to do because there are a lot of structural barriers. Uh, but it is possible. Yeah. Um, we need to encourage more teachers to do exactly that, you know, because I, I obviously do that myself as much as I can within these structural limits. I mean, I, I really go big on stuff like the transatlantic slave trade because you can't understand the rest of the world history without it. You're on dodgy foundations if you, you, you move on without that knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I think you can even, I mean, it doesn't have to be so like glorious and intellectualized. It can just be as simple as, you know, if you're teaching history in school, make sure your students know that colonialism was bad. Make sure they know about history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's add history to history. Exactly. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, and, you know, just to pick up on that as well. The, I, I mean, I think that there's there's plenty of space to move forward, teachers and lecturers that that we need. A, a lot of these narratives are especially narratives about marketization. These are dominant narratives that are created through, you know, s s the social economy of, of marketized education. But what we forget is students actually like to learn. Whenever you do talk to students, whenever students do, they are absolutely engrossed. They're coming week by week to seminars, doing their reading. And we are allying, I feel like we're allying this, this narrative to um, limit what we do and I don't think that it's, I actually don't think that, that, that it's all yeah. true. No, I think you're totally right. And I would say my experience as someone who's taught in higher education in this country for 10 years is that, you know, when you are teaching about these things, the overwhelming feedback that I get from my students is, I cannot believe I'm 21 years old and just learning this now. I should have learned this a long time ago. Right. Fantastic. So, um, one more question for you guys. Uh, hopefully it's a bit, bit more short and simple. Uh, why should school teachers care about the UCU strike that is happening right here, right Ooh, now? I mean, <laughs> one, one simple reason is that the UCU strike right now is the first industrial action under this right-wing government. And what happens to us is going to happen to everybody. We are sister unions. We're united. Mm. And what, uh, whenever we say about what happens to us, I think that the universities have historically been in quite powerful positions. That power is trying to be dismantled. Once it's dismantled for universities, anything else in less powerful positions are going to be negatively affected. Um, the you know rights to strike are going to reduce. The, the autonomy that we have over how we go about our jobs and also the, you know, the bolstering of our pensions. Once those are um, chipped away at and once they change the, the, the how, how they can negotiate negotiate or how our pensions go at all and I always remind my students of this too is that our if our pensions go these things don't roll back people don't go oh actually that was a bad idea we must reinstate these you know pensions in this way we must increase you know funds finances it doesn't happen whatever happens to us will affect um other other unions and, and teaching more broadly in the future um, I wholeheartedly agree. That's why uh, me and my uh, activist buddies, we were out on your picket line because it was half term. But <laughs> we, we understand that we, we, we absolutely echo your message. Well, thank you it, as well. We, we, stand thank in, you. we stand in solidarity yeah, with you fantastic. guys. Absolutely. Thank you. So um, I'm going to let you guys get some lunch now. Yeah. But that was fire. Thank you very much for your contribution. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
quick producer's note just to say I very rudely forgot to introduce our co-host Charlie, who is the third mic in our interview with Riley from Trash Future. Let's roll that tape. Hey, Riley. What's going on? Uh, we're very uh, lucky to have uh, Riley from Trash Future in, in our interview studio here at Bristol Transformed. And we thought we'd bring him in for a chat just to ask him how it's going. And uh, I, I'm going to ask him what he likes about Bristol Transformed and, uh, you know, what he sees as the purpose of these kind of festivals and perhaps even what role podcasts have to play in political education. OK, well, you've asked a mouthful. Uh, what, in what order shall we handle this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like about Bristol Transformed? Um, okay, I I like Bristol Transformed on, on two levels. I like Bristol Transformed as a speaker, and I like Bristol Transformed as an attendant. I like Bristol Transformed as a speaker because this festival is like, and this is a credit to all of the people who are organizing it, like uniquely well organized among many of the like lefty festivals. Like it's um. It, it's it's it has like a, a lot of volunteers who are very who are very sort of on it very keen to solve problems they understand what they're doing it's always a pleasure to come here so we always so the trash future podcast always makes a makes time to come here as long as we're invited um basically i i think it's just great uh it's always always fun to do and good to hang out with the people here as well uh as an attendant i i enjoy it because uh the um, the festival is particularly good at uh, sorry I'll, I'll go back for a second because socialism is a fundamentally critical project it looks at things that are wrong and proposes fixes to them it's very easy very very easy uh, for socialist fora to descend into people sort of engaging in endless critical projects without any kind of next step or productivity whereas the panels at Bristol transformed universally, but generally, tend to be sort of more productive uh, in their um, uh, content and pitch. But I guess that's um, exemplified with the No More Exclusion School to Prison Pipeline one, where literally at the end I struggled to get it to stop. I let We're not supposed to let them run over at all. Mm. It ran over 10 minutes into lunch, which just meant we had less lunch. But Cancel it. Cancel canceled, it all. Uh, Cancel Bristol Transformed. Cut yeah. their mics. Uh, cut, cut their mics. It's lunchtime, damn it. I... That was what I was told to do, but uh, I didn't because there were just so many people with their hands up being like, I want to get involved. I'm a, I'm involved in the law. I'm involved in, yeah, as a teacher, I'm involved as a TA. Interesting you got Judge Dredd to come by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, so I definitely agree because I think today, I feel like one of the things we achieved apart from just, you know, a good panel there was that a lot of people are connected now that weren't otherwise connected and yeah. even just as a starting point even if everything all else didn't happen that happened and that was a step forward yeah exactly that's that that's, that's i mean that summarizes why i enjoy coming here um you what were, what were some other things that you asked in your uh, do you even uh, remember <laughs> in your cartoon cavalcade of questions yeah, it was pretty amateur. I will give you that. Um, so 
I'm I've obviously attended both your uh, live podcast shows that you do at Bristol Transformed, and I especially liked the first time around your local focus on Bristol. Um, yes. Could you just give us a brief uh, recap on uh, on what you've learned about Bristol from podcasting here? Well, I well, so we I did I, I I'm interested in doing more things that are local to Bristol. Uh, it's just that I wasn't able to find something that caught me this year as much. So last year, uh, usually when we do a live podcast, we'll have a couple of segments. We'll talk about some startup that's doing something ludicrous and dystopian, and then we'll do a focus on some other thing, usually something that's happening. This year, we talked about um, a startup that is going to digitally insert product placement into old movies, um, which is just fantastic. I... Uh, all that is solid melts into ads for Pringles. Um, <laughs> and uh, then talked about how there's one guy who is um, buying the village of Bishop Auckland to turn it into what appears to be like a Dracula situation. Um, interesting. We'll find out more on the podcast. But last year, uh, we spoke about some startup or product I can't remember. And then, crucially, I did a deep dive on a society I couldn't really believe exists, which is... Bristol's local Illuminati, <laughs> a society. I, I, I kept having trouble believing that they were real, but it's a society called the Merchant Venturers, which I'm sure everyone in Bristol knows who they are. Um, connected to uh, primarily the slave trade in the early modern period, just never really went anywhere. Very politically powerful, but never really politically powerful outside Bristol. Because usually when you imagine um, smoke-filled backroom dealings and so on and so forth, you tend to imagine something a little more ambitious than the largest town in an area. And yet, here we are. Um, what I found most particularly amusing about it was the way in which they are widely believed to be sort of pulling the strings by sitting on different like boards of corporations like Bristol, like uh, the water um, utility company here, uh, or they they tend to be in charge of different charities and schools, uh, mostly involved in whitewashing the legacy of slavery from this city, um, but that they also have, again, like most most um, secret organizations tend to just be for um, guys to hang out and be friends with one another. And the way that they hang out and be friends with one another is um, they worship the hair and fingernails of slaver Edward Colston, uh, who's been dead for several centuries, of course, um, in a <laughs> secret dinner that I'm pretty sure... I, look, I can't say it's got eyes wide shut shit going on, but if anything was going to be a local Illuminati doing some, like, I don't know secretive and troubling dogging, it would be them. Um, I mean, just to link it into our business, which is uh, education podcasts, uh, the Merchant Venturers are very much on our radar as uh, heading up one dogging. of the... Well, <laughs> allegedly. Well, the, you know, by, by setting up a multi-academy trust and acquiring a portfolio of schools, we will focus on this topic. Uh, having been inspired by you, Riley, I think we'll, we'll follow up on the Merchant Venturers and their, uh, their adventures in education. Look, I have to clarify, I have no evidence that they do eyes wide shut shit i'm not saying they do eyes wide shut shit i'm just saying if they do eyes wide shut shit i'd be like that's pretty consistent with what a local illuminati would do um i'm gonna conclude this little segment because you've got to dash off with your hectic schedule um, exactly what do you see as the role of podcasts in political education <sighs> that, that that okay uh, my answer to that question changes on uh, uh pretty frequently um depending on how i'm feeling sometimes i think 
uh, podcasts are there because people are lonely and they like to feel less lonely. They want to feel like they're around people with whom they identify. Uh, and podcasts, especially the kinds of podcasts that sort of lefty comedy podcasts do, are pretty good at that. Um, however, I think also that there is something to be said for a density of messaging uh, where podcasting represents a space where we can make sure where we can control a message that doesn't have to be filtered through BBC impartiality horseshit um, and can be can reach people regularly and that they can curate. So I think it's almost a way that if you want to go down a certain route, if you're already left curious, let's say, podcasts can be an educational but also almost an inoculation tool where you can keep a density of messaging that you identify with coming through every day. Because I think a lot of the role of the liberal media, uh, the objective media, the right-wing media, whatever, is to tell you that the objective truths that you see in front of your eyes are not actually happening. They're there to tell you that uh, migrants are taking your job, even though they're not. They're there to tell you that you know, the, the NHS is a massive sink on the, nation, on the nation's budget, even though um, more and more of our taxes are going to pay for like subsidies to BAE systems or whatever. All of these things are real and all of these things are happening and you're seeing them all happening in front of you. And one of the things that leftist podcasting does, which I think when it's doing well, it does, is it's a way for us to get that message out to a lot of people very densely and for people to hear that know what you're seeing is real and there are people lying to you. And you have to treat them with contempt. I would wholeheartedly agree. And I think our uh, co-host, who's not in the room, Nick, um, he regularly advances the idea that political education should be fun. There should be humour. There should be, you know, righteous anger at points. It, it shouldn't be this necessarily always, mm. you know, a demure or stale experience. And uh, Panels are great, but there's more to life than panels. More to life than panels. <laughs> Catchphrase. Um, unless you're at Bristol Transformed when life is panels. <laughs> panels, panels, panels. And a workshop for a treat. <laughs> oh, yeah. A little, little bit on the side. Right. He's got to go. But um, thank you, Riley, for this chat. It was, it was a delight to drop in. Check out Trash Future. Uh, we'll be linking it in the description. See you later in Radioland. <laughs> Well, mics are hot, and uh, in our latest little snippet interview from Bristol Transformed, uh, we welcome Requires Improvement co-host Nick, who's uh, just delivered a session on how to talk about politics with your neighbour. I'm a friend of the show as well. Oh, obviously a friend of the show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, it's kind of hypocritical me doing how to talk to your neighbour because I've never talked to my neighbours about politics. Uh, in fact, my Wi-Fi is set to Nick is a Tory uh, and I don't know how to change it. Uh, so I just try and put as many posters up in the windows as possible. Um, but no, the idea of the session was to try and make people think a little bit differently about political meetings. Um, I feel like there is a tendency to have panels uh, which, yeah, great, sometimes great, but I think you are wasting a lot of the, I don't want to say human resources, you're wasting the best resources in the room, which are the people in it. Um, and, um, yeah, so I wanted to do a session where I could kind of show people a few techniques to be using school to get kids thinking um, to try and, um, yeah, see, see what they would pick up. 
um, and just to just enjoy it, just to kind of enjoy sitting as a group and to kind of have disagreements, but do it constructively and try and build something that is um, greater than the sum of its parts rather than just having kind of conflicting views that kind of bash heads. Um, so uh, we did some kind of introductory stuff uh, and then I showed them a stimulus, uh, which is like a, a five minute clip um, link in the description. Of, what, what, what stimulus did you pick? So it's um, a comedian called Simon Munnery uh, doing a character called Urban Warrior, um, which is a character that he had in the 90s um, where it's kind of like a kind of self-deprecating kind of Billy Bragg type character. So, I mean, like a, a classic like joke from that would be um, don't let the bastards grind you down, grind yourself down and blame them for it. Um, <laughs> he actually just... Well, I saw him in, on Thursday in, in Bristol... Um, on his farewell tour, um, basically because his solution to climate change is mass suicide, um, including doing a Morris dance as a death dance, but anyway, it's a whole whole other thing. Um, so show that clip, um, and then the group had to uh, write philosophical questions that we were then going to vote on and then discuss. Um, so various different questions that I probably should have written down, but um, the one that won when they voted on it was, if so, is self-depreciation self-deprecating the same thing is self-depreciation or cynicism disempowering mm-hmm. uh, which is really interesting because you, know, you know I don't know what they thought when they came in I don't know if they thought they were going to get some like cast iron psychological ways of like talking to someone that you find difficult to talk to in the session or not but anyway that's what they voted on so that's what we discussed um, and it was really interesting I'm like 19 strangers like disagreeing on certain points really trying to kind of focus in on what the question was about um, trying to make a difference, you know, point out the differences between self-deprecatingness and some people were suggesting maybe that is a that is a negative thing because you're not being confident, you're being more defeatist. It is a kind of very British, understated thing and it does disempower people. Um, and they were saying maybe cynicism, but then people were arguing saying maybe cynicism is the bad thing because you're being negative about everything. Um, and I linked it into... The, fa- the best philosopher ever, which is Diogenes of, S- of Sinope. Um, Diogenes the Cynic. Um, cynicism means dog-like. And he used to live in a tub in Athens, not really wearing clothes, would throw onions at people, would eat raw meat, um, and would engage in public masturbation just to like weird people out and prove points. So uh, is it something of a Gigi Allen of the ancient era? <laughs> don't know. Was, oh, never mind. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. Um... And, um, you know, he was saying, he, his motto, various mottos, one was like, deface the currency, like, destroy what they're doing. And the other is like, kind of this, this turn back to nature, wherever that is, but saying that the, the, the things that you have in modernity are wrong and doing these kind of, like, violent disagreements with it. But anyway, people weren't really talking about that that much. Although, so someone did know about him, so that, that was good. But, um, yeah, various little questions uh, bopping around um, around that and really nice to watch people discuss. Um, and at the end, I kind of said, like, which of these techniques we've used in this in this thing? could you use in a meeting um people seem like genuinely up for like going and arranging you're know, doing a um doing a uh, a meeting like this like the, there was a mum and daughter there who were wearing these like red Cornwall labor party uh t-shirts that had like cornish on them and like a lion and so it's quite a cool design and they were saying they would never wear those t-shirts in cornwall because of how it just wouldn't be accepted but they want to go back and in their clp which i'm assuming is quite small not that well attended they want to run a session like that they want to make people feel more inclusive and they want to like this is what people were saying they liked about the session was that they they'd never thought about a word for that long they never thought <laughs> about the word self-depreciation for that long and i was kind of kept linking it back to like saying 
well, yeah, on the left, we, we'll try and have a conversation about Zionism or transgender, but we don't, or, yeah, sorry, gender, but we don't spend enough time like really defining the terms of the debate and what we're discussing on. And then we'll spend like half an hour trying to like argue before we realise we're both talking about completely different things. You know, maybe just kind of having a little bit more formality in the way we discuss it and talking to a purpose um, could make quite a big difference. So I don't know. My ideal thing would be that if I, well, I could do this session again um, for other people. I just, I want to walk into a political meeting which is done differently, where you include, you don't have to include every view in there, but like you're using the people in there, not just having four people at the front talking individually then have some questions that are a bit shit this is more of a statement actually that kind of crap mm-hmm. wheedle that stuff out um include people more get people talking to the person sat next to them more um really focusing in on what you're talking about um and trying to make disagreements a constructive uh thing where you're building something that is more than the sum of its parts but other than that people just laughed at my jokes and that's all i really care about <laughs> Um, well, uh, what I will say, and uh, it was a gr- regrettable matter, I didn't actually get to see your uh, session, but um, one strength of it, I feel, mirrors uh, some of the other really beneficial meetings and trainings I've showed up to recently, where this isn't a lecture. This is about actually demonstrating the method by which people can organise, people can empower others. So a great example recently was uh, a session put on by the Bristol Union School uh, about mapping the workplace, where we actually mapped, you know, an albeit fictional but plausible workplace. And in the, you know, the, the learning was in the doing. And, you know, I, I, I think that's one particular strength of how you pitched that session. I mean, do you want to just, for the uninitiated, just give a global overview about the... P4C method that you use there? Yeah, so um, it's called P4C or Philosophy for Children um, or the way it's done in the UK, it's Philosophy for Children, Colleges and Communities. Uh, it's run by an organisation, well, overseen by an organisation that does the qualifications called SAPRE, S-A-P-R-E. Um, and it was developed in the 90s by a guy called Matthew Lippman who wanted children to talk and think more like philosophers so they're doing philosophy, not learning about philosophy, but doing philosophy. Um, and um, you're trying to make them more creative, caring, collaborative and critical. Uh, and at the start of the session, I kind of showed these things as ground rules and people were like, yeah, yeah, we don't really do that ever in our jobs at all. Or maybe we do the caring bit, but then we're not critical or we just critical and we don't collaborate. Um, so... Yeah, I was worried that maybe that would come across as a bit patronising, kind of going through ground rules. But again, actually, it's, it really isn't. Like To assume that everyone is going to be okay at listening to other people. Well, no, no, no it's, not, it's yeah. about establishing clear boundaries so it's a safe environment. Like, you you know, children don't learn in an unsafe environment and neither do adults, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, I was always thinking, thinking you could do it as like a book group, I think. Or like, well... At the end, I suggested maybe, look, if you've got people that you find it difficult to talk to, well, you send them a documentary, send them a film to watch, send them a short clip, send them an article, and then when that's the stimulus. And then when you meet up, you could decide on a question. You work through the question together. You work out what it is you disagree on. And then you talk with purpose constructively. You're not digging into two sides because, well, some, I'm not that big into that psychology, but I've read some stuff somewhere. It's suggested where 
if you ask someone to explain why they have their opinion and then you explain why you have your opinion that's different, you just dig in, you get further away from each other as that goes on. Um, this is not set up as a debate like that. This is more constructive, like you're, you're going somewhere together, um, which is just what we need to be doing. <laughs> I completely agree. So if any of the listeners uh, would be interested in devising their own session along your lines, how could they go about learning about P4C? Uh, so the uh, Sapere run training sessions um, and are quite expensive. It's like a two-day course, be like 200, 250 quid. The NEU paid for my... Uh, course they ran it um, as a thing that's free to members so if you're in a trade union and you think this has really helped you in your workplace we're organizing I think lobby your union to put the training on because it really is fantastic um, failing that see if your union branch would, would, would pay you to go or, or your school potentially yeah. yeah I mean they run it as a whole school training for primary schools and stuff um, failing that um, there are other types of facilitation workshops that you could do that might be a way of dipping your toe in. But I think, you know, just try it. Like, what's the worst yeah, that can happen? Yeah, have a go. I mean, if you uh, email me, like, I'm, I'm evangelical about this. Um, if anyone wants help with it, I'll, I'll say this at the end of the session, I'll um, just get in contact with us on the on the Twitter and I'll, um, I'll help you devise a session and uh, and work it out. Because, uh, yeah, it's just good, really. Uh, yeah, I, that's just a shit way of explaining it. But it, is, it does just feel very different when you come away from it. Um, you know, people are still talking as they're, as they're leaving the room. And it's, it's nice. Fantastic. Is there anything else we need to cover in this conversation, Nick? I missed all the other workshops that have been on, but there are. This is why Bristol Transformed is is good, and that was not disappointed. But when I went to the World Transform in Liverpool a few years ago, I remember thinking, "Wow, we're gonna have some radical pedagogy." I remember just being like, Ugh, "Another panel, death by panel." Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's shit because it's like, oh, these amazing people, but they don't cross pollinate. So if anyone can like work out a way of making a panel. Like actually, because even like, say, if like you wanted to watch the um, like Oxford Debating Society, in a way, there's more like synthesis there. Just in that, in the Oxford Debating format, it's like A introduce, B go, A sorry, the the second speaker on the A side, second speaker on the B side, then it's like questions, then you could kind of sum up and so even that is better than what we have as a panel show, mm. as a panel format, four people talking, like the the chair could possibly start to like cross pollinate oh, i keep saying it but like how do i explain that i wouldn't know how to do it but i mean maybe it's because we just don't we don't try it you know yep. i mean they can't see even when you watch like a good podcast uh listen to a good podcast are the chairs doing that are they trying to make these two people bounce off each other to get something new or do they just talk to the two of them separately about the same thing because i feel like that's what's happening isn't it but maybe that's good. I don't know. But like to me, we should be building. I don't know. Maybe I'm being vague now. I don't know. I'm tired. <laughs> Food for thought. Certainly. <laughs> um, I think there's a. We. I think both at Bristol Transform and on requires improvement. There's a healthy amount of cross pollination. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, that's what they're trying to do on on Trash Future, isn't it? And they kind of push for the um, the silliness of things. And I think last year um, saw the panel about like. Uh, left-wing media building a left-wing media and they were saying oh what's the matey's name the main guy from Trash Future Riley Quinn Riley he was on the stage and he was saying like actually it can using comedy and humour and being silly can help to include other guests because mm-hmm. otherwise you might just be getting guests on because they are they fill your diversity quota um, but actually if you're just or, or you get them in they only ever talk about the same thing but if you get them to be silly let their guard down do something a bit different then you are getting something new. Um, 
and yeah that's important I don't know I'm going to let you uh, trip off to your next event then Nick but thank you for your contribution to this uh, rather sporadic set of interviews a little cool. a little glimpse into Bristol Transform cool uh, good luck in the uh, edit yeah it's going to take me some time but time well we're, spent we're going to record stuff at the after party and we're just going <laughs> to yeah, the 2 a.m. Uh, session. Just follow Paul Mason around and see um, see, see what people say to him. Uh, I asked him for an interview, but he's a very busy man. So at the last Bristol Transformed after party, um, the former mayor of Bristol turned up. So this guy, if you don't know, this guy was called George Ferguson. So he won the first elected mayor um, thing that Bristol had. So there was a referendum to have an elected mayor. Bristol passed it. Um, he basically is a kind of venture capitalist. So he runs loads of, like, good arty things, like tobacco factory, think, like, expensive pubs that um, do, like, good theatre. Um, and he, like, has a trade... Oh, his fucking trademark is wearing, like, red chinos. That's his whole thing. And cycling everywhere. So he won that mayoral bid. He was a Lib Dem for 25 years. Then when the mayor thing was announced, he denounced... Lib, didn't denounce them. He just, like, cancelled his membership and ran as an independent. Saying, like, oh, independent Bristol, that kind of thing. But then when he became... To, when he came to power... He just did laughable things. You know, he like the side of Bristol that he championed was the kind of Clifton people that already have money, people that don't need a mayor, people people that don't need politics to look after them because Gen- gentrified Bristol. Yeah. yeah. And like and there was some stuff about channeling money like money from the council started to get channeled into certain areas and then it was like, Oh, there's a new George Ferguson business there and stuff like that. So I'm not yeah. Whatever, I might be alleging corruption, I don't know. But, you know, it just seemed a bit weird that these kind of... Or maybe it was just because where he was, he could see where these things were going, whatever. But, um, yeah, and he turned up at Bristol Transformed. So it's like, he's got no history of being on the left. Um, he's not, No one's even seen him for, like, four years because we've had a different mayor and, you know, he's just, he's just disappeared again. And he turned up at the after party and, fucking hell, just, like... Every single different person was turning up to him and just like just having a massive go at him, um, which he clearly craves the abuse. Yeah, well, no, but there's there's footage of him online as well of like um, people just coming up to him and have a go at him and filming it, and he's I think he does actually kind of enjoy like a street based like <laughs> fuck off you don't know what you're talking about thing like it's worth looking up it's pretty bad he's saying stuff that like if I said it in my job I'd be fired. Um, <laughs> but he's doing it and uh, just watching people go up to him just have a go at him in the toilet stuff you know I'm not saying I revel in all abuse of all of its kinds but here was a guy who you know under him St Paul's Carnival didn't happen because he didn't care about or his administration whatever didn't care about actual working class culture he didn't care about that side of Bristol and that's the best side of Bristol. Not the fact that you can go and see theatres and shows and stuff, although that is, that is really nice, obviously, but no very small amount of people can actually fucking access that shit. Whereas, like, Carnival is amazing. <laughs> it's actually amazing. You know, black kids, um, just poor kids, who just can't go to town because they can't afford it. But they love music, but they can't see any live music because no one will let them in the venues and they can't afford it. We put some sound systems on a street and it's, like, it's genuinely amazing. And um, this guy just couldn't see that oh maybe uh, George Ferguson will uh, bless us again with his company tonight and uh, no one can accuse Bristol Transformed of being an echo chamber <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it was very very weird very very weird but yeah maybe we'll see him tonight alright 
Here's hoping. To be honest, if Marvin Reese turned up, he'd probably get the same kind of trip. <laughs> I, so. I, got, I got a few <laughs> yeah, words yeah. for Mr. Mayor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that. Um, should we wind this one up yeah, then? Yeah, Sam, I'm going to go. Cheers. So in keeping with the theme of our show, it's clear that my interviewing skills require improvement because once again, I have forgotten to introduce Charity for the following interview. She is on third mic and we are chatting with Matt Hollinshead. Uh, yeah, so in our next uh, chat with contributors to Bristol Transforms, we are delighted to have Matthew Hollinshead here in the green room studio. Uh, Matt, say hi and tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, hi, yeah, I'm Matt. Um, I am a union organiser uh, for my day job and a... I don't know. I do too much uh, non- labour nonsense in the rest of my sp- in the rest of my time, but um, I've been involved in the last two years of uh, Bristol Transformed, and this year I've been doing uh, workers' power in just under an hour, uh, which is a session from Bristol Union School on getting people skilled up to cause headaches for their boss. Excellent. We like we like that sort of thing. Um, we've been meaning to get you on the show anyway, just because uh, I attended your Bristol Union School. And the thing I liked about it most was that there was only five minutes of lecturing and the rest of it was pedagogically sound because you showed us what we were supposed to learn. The activity was concrete. It was well thought through. It was multifaceted. And everyone who participated came away with having practically done something which they can then, you know, take elsewhere in the workplace. So uh, I know I uh, only wish we had an hour. We only have 10 minutes. But would you want to just take us through what you uh, the gist of what you were telling people today about your workers' power in an hour? Um, yeah. So the idea was to get the basics for people. So um, this one was less pedagogically sound because it was like it's an introduction. So there was um, we had about 20 minutes at the beginning where we were setting up the ground rules. So <clears throat> the first one being, what is organising? So you've got, uh, I don't know if you guys made it to the ACORN session uh, this Sadly morning. not, no. That was no. because you're slackers. Um, yep. The, um, in that session, Joe, uh, one of the ACORN activists, was um, just made a really good point. If you were about on the socialist left four years ago, five years ago, everyone called themselves an activist, right? About... Two years after that, you suddenly became a campaigner. And now, everyone under the sun is an organiser, right? But what that means is different for everybody involved. Like, you ask three organisers what their job is, they will give you three different answers. Um, I was speaking to a guy who's a um, senior regional official in a, uh, one of the super unions um, about his attempts to talk about what organising is with his staff. And he was saying that he literally got all of the region's organisers in a room and not one of them had the same definition of what organising was, which is a problem if you're trying to get people to all do the same thing at the same time. So what we did in the session was kind of lay out what I reckon organising is, and because I'm very clever, it was right. Um, (laughs) You heard it here first. No. um, What I've done is shamelessly steal Jane McAlevey's definition from... um, no shortcuts. Uh, organising for power in the new Gilded Age, available in all good bookshops, um, which is basically organising is when you... Actually, let's start with what organising isn't, because that's how we do it in the session. We talked about what the... 
two things organising isn't that Michael Levy talks about, and a third, which I think is quite important at the moment, which isn't covered in the book. So the first one is advocacy. Um, a lot of us will encounter advocacy through the charity sector. So maybe somebody who's a um, works for Amnesty International will go and speak to government and say, you need to go and put pressure on the Iranian government to release um, X, Y and Z trade unionist or um, uh, the the journalist who's currently um, locked up. Although she's not actually a journalist, that's the point. But yeah, whatever. Um, that's someone who's very clever going and speaking to someone who's very powerful on behalf of someone who's powerless, right? Or some things that are powerless, you know, people going and, like, save the pandas, all that kind of shit. So, um, am I allowed to swear? <laughs> yes. Good, right, it sounds... Um, so you've got that, an advocate going and speaking on behalf of people to power, right? And you know, it's important stuff. Going and speaking truth to power has its own genuine, real social wealth. Unless, unless you're Jess Phillips. Let's not talk about it. Sorry. No. <laughs> um, this is a happy day. <laughs> oh, sorry. How could I bring the tone down like that? Sorry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's advocacy. The other, the other one that Michael Levy talks about is... Um, Mobilising. So mobilising would be when you... So there's something bad happening in the city. Uh, you want to solve the problem. You call a meeting and you get all the people who agree with you in the city to come to a meeting. Or, like, probably more, more accurately, 10% of the people who agree with you in the city to come to a meeting. Um, you then get them to go and do something. So that might be a protest. That might be they all write to their MP. Um, it might be something like really disruptive you know it might be some direct action from um people like extinction rebellion um but it's done on mass there's lots and lots of people who go and do it um and what that's doing is it's using uh, and then probably what will happen in most cases is somebody from that organization will then go and speak to people in power um now again that's really good in loads and loads of contexts it's a really useful way of making social change the problem is doesn't bring in anyone new you're bringing the people who already agree with you right so you've already got a fixed a fixed like maximum capacity of the people you can be can be brought can be brought involved and of them you're only going to get the ones that you've managed to contact and of them you only get the ones that are going to be prepared to take action right so it's a it's always going to be very narrow and then in practice the people who are mobilized have very little say in how how the, the movement works like how many people's assembly demonstrations have, have you been on really and then how many times you've got to say in how people's assembly coordinates its its activity I, I actually like people's assembly i think it's a good organization in many many ways but it doesn't make the people involved in the demonstrations any more powerful and it doesn't change the balance of class forces and that's what organizing does so organizing is about bringing more people in and changing the balance of class forces. I added an additional one because we're an ultra-left festival in an ultra-left city. So, like, I added adventure. So people who are adventurists who kind of get to the point where they're like, well, I've tried, I've tried advocacy, I've tried mobilising, it doesn't work, and, like, the plebs are all reactionary and I'm just going to go and do something wild to, to fix it. Like, glue myself to a tube train in the middle of rush hour when people are trying to get home. Or um, in one... Did you guys hear about the Cells of Fire in Bristol? No. All right, so it's this anarchist, um, anarchist group that 
and did loads of really rad stuff, like burned down a police firing range and um, some really fucked up stuff, like um, damaging the points on, a, um, on the trains coming into Temple Meads to like shut down the flows of capital. Like, All right, mate, you're fucking up loads of people's commute. Chill out. And some stuff that was genuinely just inexplicable, like slashing the tires on a um, Boy Scouts fan. Like, <laughs> take that, Boy Scouts. We know who you'll grow up to be, capitalists. Yeah, like Boy Scouts in Knoll. <laughs> What's going on? Like, they are the seat of power. There is this that that they are the decision makers. The um. The, the, where we really need to change things is by making the lives of just kids who want to go tie knots and dress up like, and make their lives harder. Reminds but, me of that clip from The Simpsons where it's like, I'll tell the children there'll be no camp this year. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Um, so, like, I, and I think that's important as well because that, that frustration, that feeling that I need to personally do something um, and it needs to happen now and it needs to be something really, really kind of radical is a feeling that I think we've all like, all had at some point, and that frustration can really build up. But the problem is that nine times out of ten, it won't do anything to the people you want it to. It will probably put people off. It will make life harder for the people you need to get on side, and you'll probably get arrested. Like, that combination of things makes the movement less powerful, not more powerful. So it's definitely not organising, right? So we've kind of done the... Um, Definition via, like, what it isn't. So what does that mean organising is? It means taking a defined constituency. So um, let's say a, a school, right? And you have all of the people in the school and you get a majority of those people to take action together in a structured and strategic way to change the conditions of their lives. And that can be anything from taking it under workers' control, ambitious, to making sure there is hand sanitizer around so no one dies of, like, corona. Less ambitious. But the main thing is that what you're trying to do is build a majority in a fixed constituency. Because when it's a fixed constituency, and, and, and that has to be one that's not self-selecting, in, I suppose, workplaces are in a sense self-selecting, but... You couldn't. You can't just walk away. Walk away from your job. You can't just go. This is hard. I give up, because then you lose your job and you lose your home and you, all that kind of stuff. So there's there's like a fixed constituency of people who have to be involved, and there's two reasons for that. One, those fixed constituencies are actually where the power in society is, like workplaces, um, or like specific communities with postcodes, um. And also it's it's easily defined, so you can work out roughly when you've got 70, 80%. You've got a super majority of people involved. Because if you have a self-selecting group of people, like Extinction Rebellion, for example, really, really inspiring in loads of ways, but how would they ever know when they've got a majority of people on board? You know what I mean? They don't, and, and as a result, their strategy takes that into account and they don't want a majority of people. They just want to disrupt and that, I don't think, is sustainable because you will run out of the constituency of people who agree with you. You know, you'll pol- you polarise it and you run, out of, you run out of people to recruit, whereas what organising does is it brings in the people who are... It, it, it doesn't necessarily bring in, but it forces you to try to bring the people in. 
Um, and then we did to the practical session, which uh, was about looking at three fictional trade union branches, or oh, actually three fictional workplaces with trade unionists in it, uh, who did things that some bits of organizing, some bits of advocacy, some bits of mobilizing, and I got the people participating to analyze which ones were which. We had a chat about what that was. People fed back, there was disagreement, there was, it was that was all um, kind of getting getting the cognitive juices flowing. And then we were like, right, so you are in a hypothetical workplace. They're about to scrap overtime. Everyone needs the overtime to survive. You're not paid enough for it to work without overtime. You need to save it. Here are seven people from the workplace with like descriptions about their little backstory, a little bit of a little bit of their history. Um and we they as a as a group had to figure out who they were going to speak to, in what order, and explain why. And they had to pick the leaders, the ones who were going to be able to bring everybody else on board. Because if you don't move the people who are influential in the workplace, it's very likely that those people are not are going to be kind of working against you, at least un- potentially unintention, potentially unintentionally. Um, but. If you haven't got them on board, you're not going to move everybody, and you need to move everybody. So that was the that was the session, more or less. And we had um, it was really good. I was really, if I don't if I do say so myself, um, really good session in terms of people kind of being really skeptical at first and not just being like, oh yes, this is very clever. They were like, don't know about this. And then we started like working through it and picking things out, and it started to make sense to people in there. Like everybody started talking about their own workplace and stuff, and that's that's when you know you've got it. That's when you know it's yeah. like it's actually hitting home. Um, so that's what I did. That's my that's my day. Sounds jolly impressive. Did you have any questions in mind, Charlie? Yeah, I guess um, I went to some rep training by the NEU, which she wasn't bad. I feel like um, if I could say anything, they might have been able to bring up just some of the policy changes that you know really like make make people rage a bit about like what what we used to have in terms of trade union law and what what we've got now because i think when i whenever i've heard a new one what thatcher did or or even what Theresa may might have done uh it always gives me a little bit extra rage maybe go yeah trade unions really really are the way and i feel like that's one thing i noticed at the time that they lacked but i guess when you've got a whole bunch of reps in the room and they've just like a lot of them being new they've already got to somewhere where they've whether they're not the organic leader but they've set themselves up as some sort of leader somehow they've been Mm. chosen in some sort of way but what i think i've started um no no shortcuts but haven't finished it but what i'm kind of getting from that is that actually just because you're the rep doesn't mean that you're the that you're the is it is it organic or natural organic that not to mean you're the organic leader and doesn't mean that you have to make the rep the organic leader no sorry make the organic leader a rep as well although you could um and it's like how do you say that to reps straight off or just say it like just because just because you're the rep doesn't I'm, mean I'm sorry it turns out no one likes you <laughs> And you have no friends. I'm so no one's sorry. gonna do what you say. You've got to get someone else who's cool to do it for you. Um, yeah. So there is an extent to which, like, sometimes some trade union reps. Obviously, none of the trade union reps that I work with um, have been. You know those bits in films where everybody's like they're looking for volunteers and everybody else takes a step back rather than people taking a step forward. Yeah. That's how a lot of trade union reps end up in their positions, right? 
And given that a lot of us are in a situation where our relationship with the union is more like um, it's an insurance policy. You're, <clears throat> you're a member in case your boss decides to be an asshole and you need someone to be in the room with you to, to help you out. I have been there plenty um, because I was very bad at the jobs I had before. <laughs> um, uh, and, and that's like that's fine and good and to some extent I don't think you can get around it. Um, but it does mean that often the reps who are there are really hardworking, really ideologically committed, really care about it, but their relationship to the membership is not one where the membership thinks that they're a leader. It's more that they think that they're probably competent enough to do this service for them, um, which means there are, they are a kind of leader and they will have some kind of influence and they will have saved enough people's bacon in the workplace for them to have like a bit of influence and when i'm trying to talk about organizing like this to people who are already reps what i don't say to them is these guys are leaders and you aren't i say look you've got an agenda you're going into this workplace with an agenda you want to make a change and if you if you don't why are you doing this like what what are you here for and i think it's legitimate to have a conversation with people who are reps and go do you still want to be doing this mate You've been in the. You've been doing this for like twenty years. Do you want like? Do you never just think? I might have a rest, <laughs> like, or like, why don't you? If if they're not going to take kindly to being told that they're old and knackered, like, um, you can have a conversation with them and say, look, we need to. We need to bring other people on board. We need to get somebody who's like learn learn the skills you've got because you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Like, and I I don't know enough. Like, can you teach me? And that's a, like, that can be a really useful way of making sure their knowledge is brought on board. But then you say to them, look, as I said before, we've got an agenda. We need to win, um, let's say, um, what's the worst thing in your in your school at the moment, Lee? What's the thing that's really, like, fucking people off? Um, genuinely, it doesn't sound great, but it's cleanliness. Yeah, um, it sounds perfect. That's really, really good. Um, that's a, a really prime example you are saying to the reps, the other reps that you're in the meeting room with, is like, we need to get this school clean. The fact that the school is not clean is making it unsafe for us to work. It is meaning we are not respecting the kids and it means that we are, um, we are working in an environment which indicates to everybody that we don't care. And that, is, that just degrades everybody around us and we're, we're not supposed to be about degrading people. We're supposed to be educators, right? In that context... You say to them, right, you've got an agenda. Your agenda is to get the majority of people on board so that the head can't say, no, I will not um, change whatever it is that needs to be changed. Like, do you need to get a new cleaning company and do you need to get cleaning packs in in the session? Do you just need to, like, change the service levels? But you've got an agenda, you need to hit it. And you say to them, strategically, who do I speak to first? Maybe you don't even talk about leaders yet. You just say... If you've got, if I've got an agenda, who in the geography department do I need to speak to? Who is it in reception that people listen to? And you describe a leader, you don't necessarily say to them, you guys are all nerds, we've got to go find the cool kids, because it will put people off. You do need to get rid of the nerds and find the cool kids. <laughs> or at least down, <laughs> oh, the nerds. Oh, get my coat. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, like, God. <laughs> 
<laughs> but the point the point I'm saying is you're not um and there there is an element where actually doing that work, finding that stuff out, thinking about it strategically, and as you bring more people on board, all the people that you're going and speaking to, you need to be upfront with them. Like this is our strategy to achieve this goal. When you explain to someone that you have a strategy and it's a strategy that makes sense, they will take you seriously. You are then influencing that person. Hey, presto, you've made yourself a leader, right? There isn't, there is a kind of performative element to it where, like, by getting people to follow you, you are becoming a leader. But you can't. You can't just have self-selecting leaders. You need the organic ones as well. You need the complement between the two because some of those organic leaders are also going to be in a situation where they just hate it and they just hate the union and they're ideologically opposed to it or they're the kind of, like, bell-end teacher that says, oh, I couldn't do it to the kids. Like, and that's just, like, I'm, I'm not having that. It is, just, it is Neither are we. It is just appalling. But... um. I come from a family full of teachers like that. Is uh, um, I like got raised in NUT crashes, so I kind of got the the oh, I couldn't do it to the kids. Hate like baked in pretty young. So <laughs> they raised you right. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long day, and you know what? I have no follow up to my questions. I mean, I here's the thing. All right, I do have a final question. I'll edit my uh, prevaricating out to make myself only your sound own. only my own. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Matt, if people listening to this, they could be educators, they could be any old person, right? If they want to get more active in their union and become an organiser, what steps would you recommend they take? Come to Bristol Union School? Yeah, so if you are in Bristol um, and, yeah, come to St Paul's Learning Centre at 7 o'clock on the last Thursday of the month, um, almost every month. Um, you can send an email to bristolunionschool at gmail.com to find out if um, you know, if you listen to a back back edition of this or something, um, see if we're still going. Um, but uh, yeah, that would be that's one thing you could do. But my my first first thing that I think people should do if they're looking to organise their union is speak to your rep and say, do you have members meetings? If they do, you are in a good situation. Um, if they don't, you should say, we should have a members meeting. And they might go, oh, I don't know about that. Uh, so what you need to do is make sure one happens. So first things first is make a list of everybody you work with. Sounds really creepy. I Especially appreciate when it. you add the photos. <laughs> and the rating system. <laughs> Nine out of ten. All right. <laughs> It is creepy when Lee says actually. <laughs> it's one of my talents. Yeah. Um, so make a make you. But what you're doing is you're just you need to. Um, you know that feeling when you're trying to do something at home and like the house is a tip and there's like water coming in from a window and your cat won't stop pissing in the corner and. Um, like, you need to get to the shops because you've also got nothing in the, in the fridge because, like, you live a human life. Um, Barely. Yeah. You need to, like, the, the system, the, the, the taking a few minutes to sit down and write a list of the things you need to do chills you out. Like, it's been scientifically proven that writing lists brings down your blood pressure. It zens you out 
and you can start to tackle them one at a time. When you think, I have got to move from being in a situation where I am, if I speak up, I am putting myself and my family on the line and I have got to go from there to whatever it is that your your hope is, that gulf can be so big that you just can't possibly achieve it. So taking a bit of time and going, right, these are the steps I need to take. And even if you don't know all of the steps, just make write as many of them down as you can. Like, that's how you, that's how you sort your house out and make sure you um, get the stuff you need to get done on a Sunday done, right? So do the same at work. Just make a list of the people you work with and tick them off. Go and speak to them and say, um, Charlie, you come to the union meeting on Thursday. And then, like... Actually, yeah, Charlie, are you coming to the uni meeting on Thursday? Oh, I'm very tired, you know, yeah. I'm not sure I've got to wash my hair and things. Yeah, and you start to have a conversation with them about... Come on. Like, I thought you were going to convince me. Nah. <laughs> this okay. isn't a role play. Um, but like, you start having a conversation with them about kind of the cleanliness issue, right? You pick, you, you go, basically, you can be really straightforward with their agenda and just be like, look, the place is filthy and we need... We need to we need to get it sorted, and they're not going to sort it unless like we put some pressure on them. You might not like depend. You you know your colleagues, so you know which way it's going to be. Like you just say, we just need to talk about how horrible the situation is, and you get them you get people to meet him. If they say no, then yeah, fuck it. You know, it's not that bad. You you move on to the next one. And if you're being strategic about it, who we're saying about the rating system, you can think right. Who do I need to speak to first? Is it? Is if Lee comes, is he going to bring the rest of the history department? Or if Charlie comes, um, is it going to put everybody off? Because she never shuts up. And like, you can think, uh, okay, I'm going to have to get everybody, I'm going to have to do it like strategically and do this person first and I'll speak to them. And I probably shouldn't speak to this person before I speak to this person because they'll get offended. <laughs> like, they're my mate. And you can do it that way. And just think about the, the sensible order that you would do things in the same way that you think about the sensible order to tidy your house. You don't start trying to um, like redecorate while you've still got dishes to do, right? So you just kind of think through your, like, think through your things. And that's that when, when you start being... Um, and then once, you, once you've got a meeting together, you can say to people, look, we need to shift... We need to convince the head that we need to get the things clean. Um, what would convince him? That's a, that's a really good organising question. Like, what would convince them? Because people then start to think strategically. Oh, we've got we've got to convince him, and that actually becomes not that hard a question to answer. It's like, oh, we just go Kia's car. <laughs> no, but like every day until he relents. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. On that, on the note of um, the planning out the, the the workers, I think as well. I mean, it's probably the same in other jobs, but with teaching, you know, there's a lot of people who are part time. So if you're going to think about, I guess, well, one, if it's going to be after school, I think that's probably one of the only times you could do it like privately, because mm. uh, otherwise, like people have to disclose that they're having time off. Like apparently, you could technically ask for it, like a tiny bit of time mm-hmm. that all union. People, it's literally all have to have cover, mm. so it it yeah. would instantly um, out everyone, which is something that um, you wouldn't want to happen. Uh, so after school, what day of the week is it? The same day as staff meeting? Is it going to be the day before, the day after? Mm. Who's who's those people who 
um, are definitely going to come, maybe prioritise the day that they're able to work until at least three o'clock uh, over the days that they maybe don't work or leave um, at midday or something like that as part of that process, which would be even add an extra element of difficulty to what would already be yeah quite complex with a large mm. school, but worthwhile. Yeah, totally. And you don't need to start with the whole school, right? You can start with your department. You can start with what's a manageable... Um, what's a manageable unit to do something with so like the first instance is uh, can I get the majority of my my department or my year group or whatever the structure is that you're like whatever the natural structure that you sit in in your organisation so like in the when I was working in call centres what I would start to do um, to try and get people on board would be I would just speak to my team and the people who sat in my immediate area. So I'd literally have in a notebook the desks and more or less where people sort of normally sat. Obviously it's hot desking because it's a call centre, no one's ever in the same place twice, but you know that like, all right, so I'm probably going to be, Nikki always sits next to Joe, um, and then and blah, 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 blah. You, you build this little little map and then you go through systematically and you say, like, we should do something. And if it's just in the, and like that, that something can be really, really small. It can be, do you fancy a coffee after work to talk about... Oh, do, you, do you fancy coffee after work? Go for a coffee with them, talk to them about the union, like, just get... Start to figure out what the problems are with them. And that can be a really, that can be a really kind of low-impact entry. Or, if you know they're really fucked off, you can be like... I'm really like, I'm really pissed off about the fact that the place is filthy, and just get them to talk to you about it. As a spanner in that though, mm-hmm. is that something that maybe Matt Holland said we're able to do because he's a you know, I feel like I'm gonna say non-threatening, but not in a not that's not supposed to be like in a rude way, but you are, like, <laughs> you know, you're an approachable person, yeah, and you're a bloke, and you say to you know an old member of um, staff, be they. Um, male or female hmm. were young in a similar way hmm. but if I was to say go up to I don't know a 56 year old bloke who's maybe the Senko or maybe mm-hmm. he's like the year 6 teacher and just go do you want to go for a coffee after work so we can talk about your problems <laughs> like- no, no, but yeah yeah okay so I, as I was saying that I was like I suppose in some context that yeah you just could be like you're hitting on your colleagues uh, don't do that <laughs> like, but Think about it. Think about it. Like strategically, who's the best person to speak to them? Like, again, it needn't be you. you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. That's exactly the point. It doesn't need to be you. You don't have to do everything. It could be that actually, what you need to do is figure out. Okay, I need a. I can't. I can't pull this meeting together on my own. Who do I need to be able to speak to everyone else? So that map that you're drawing out. You know, what I'm saying like Joe sits next to Nikki all the time. The like. Where is the cluster of the older teachers who've all been in the school together for ages and get on? Because they're actually going to be really useful because they're going to know that they're going to know the lay of the land. They're going to have loads of experience. They might even have some history of union militancy, heaven forbid. Um, but yeah, the first time you go and speak to them, it might not be appropriate to say, oh, do you want to go for coffee? That thing might be your mate. You know what I mean? You go and speak to your work friends and say, trying to go for coffee and then when you're in the when you're when you're sitting down having the rest of your conversation you go the place is filthy 
we need to we need to sort how filthy the um filthy it is like who do i speak to like who yeah who do i need to like to talk to to get it fixed like go and ask the people's advice and that can be really useful when you're talking to the older like the you know your 56 year old um senko bloke go and say excuse keith you know how the place is filthy who do i speak to about getting it fixed um because that you know all men appreciate being told being asked questions that they can seem knowledgeable about it is a is a universal truth so you and especially the older you get the more you like dispensing wisdom um I just got there really early. <laughs> Matt is an old man, an in, old, old man. in the body of a slightly younger man. man. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so you just go and, go and have that conversation with them and think about what the most appropriate way to do. So you were saying, like, what's the first thing you can do? I would make a list. The second thing I would do is go and speak to those people mm. and then get those people together. That's a, like, boom, boom, boom. I mean, so this is, would you define this process as mapping the workplace? I would define it as mapping the workplace. <laughs> Funny that. Did you come I, up with that? I think I might have left that out in my of my description of your previous session at the Bristol Union School, but to be clear, that's what it was yeah, about. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. So what we did there was, um, in that session, was we had a, a hypothetical workplace and a list of um, list of all the staff, and people went through and um, kind of tracked activity that was going on in the workplace. Like, were they coming to trade union meetings? Were they signing a petition about um, issues at work? Uh, were they had they taken part in the union survey and that kind of if you are already a trade union rep and you are not keeping track of the work you are doing you are just pissing your hard work away like just keep a record man like because when you've got that record it can guide your activity you can see that one area of the of the um of the workplace or one area of the business is not having people participate and then another area might have really really high participation and think like oh why is that work why is that why is it working here and not over there and you can start to analyze it and then you can think ah right it's working there because they're working with the younger kids and it's really just much much filthier i don't know if that's is there a correlation between how young they are and how filthy they are it seems to Sad, me like, sadly not oh, okay <laughs> um but like yeah you you get the you get the picture um and then so yeah, we would we were doing that kind of workplace mapping, but mapping can be everything from like having a very simple list to having a really big chart of all the people who work in your workplace that you're tracking, like your um what's his face from Always Sunny, um and that's like it's how you win, right? It's how every like every um like what's the word um yeah like when when businesses are trying to trying to organize a campaign, they will map every step. They will think about who the constituency they're trying to sell to, and like we think, because we're trade, because we're trade unionists, that somehow those things that help them help the other side win are like bad strategy. Like, nah, we can we can we can use their tools to you know get them guillotined. But you heard Perfect. it here first, guys. Um, Matt, I'm just going to say thanks on behalf of the podcast for coming in and uh, sharing your thoughts. I'm I'm very glad. I've never been on a podcast before. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> how is that? You seem like a very good podcast person. How how have I never been on a podcast before? Yeah. Um, people who have podcasts, uh, I think, are I'm afraid. Me too on the internet. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that one. <laughs> All right, let's have for that. 
<laughs> Never mind. That's what. That's what. Disregard that last question. <laughs> Edit. Right, that wraps up day one of Bristol Transforms, and it has been an absolute banger. And we'll be back uh, with session two tomorrow. That is Sunday, and hopefully we'll chat to some more inspiring people. But cheers for chatting to us, Matt. It's much appreciated. Join you. So. Just a final producer's note from me here. I would like to announce that joining us for this fifth and final interview is Requires Improvement co-host Lauren. She's joining Charlie on third mic, and so take it away. Hey, so here we are on day two of Bristol Transformed. Uh, It is a Sunday. We are a little bit tired, but we are really pleased to have in our little studio Sarah Jaffe, journalist and, you know, prominent panellist across the weekend, (laughs) sharing her views on uh, topics such as uh, strategy for the left and, you know, new forms of digital media, the role that uh, media can play in... uh, Helping our calls, and so we we just really chuffed to have you uh, along for a chat, just to pick your brains on a few topics. Mm, my brains are here to be picked. It's good to be here. So, so observant listeners will have noticed that uh, she has an American accent. <gasps> I do. And, uh, we I'm just trying to lose it though. Obviously, that's that's why you've come <laughs> here. You've come here to get rid of what it. What are you going to replace it with? Uh, the weird mishmash of things that I always am, which always ends up sounding like vaguely Canadian. I think. Fair enough. This is what happens to Americans that come to England. You sound like sort of Canadian. Well, um, <laughs> we don't care about Canada. If any, any, any listeners here, not interested. But we are actually quite interested about um, your experience in the education sector in the USA. We understand yeah, you've had some first-hand experience of covering teacher strikes over there. Yeah, so, I mean, teachers have been, like, the forefront of the U.S. labor movement for the last decade or so, really. Um, they have been sort of under attack, but also figuring out ways to sort of remake their unions and fight back. And so, you know, starting in Chicago in 2012, and then, like, a wave of reform caucuses took over unions around the country. And then in 2018, we had this big sort of dramatic, like, the, the red state revolt, Um, I say that with air quotes around it, of teacher strikes in these states that don't really have like legalized union protections or formalized union protections under the law. So it's been an interesting uh, few years. So have you found that perhaps um, the fact that the situation is observably worse for American teachers, has that actually been a help (laughs) to their labor movement? You know, I think when you push someone and you push someone and you push someone at some point, they're going to push back. Um, I think, you know, that the Chicago teachers very much their reform movement came very much out of a combination of like just years and years of attacks on teachers and public schools in particular. And then the, like the financial crisis in 2008. And so the group that took over the Chicago Teachers Union started as a radical reading group mm. of teachers who were, you know, some of them were socialists, some of them were not. But they were all like, we need to read about what's going on here. We need to figure out what's going on. And the first thing they did was read Naomi Klein's shock doctrine and apply it to what had been going on with their schools and mm. with like the public sector broadly. So that turned into a caucus within the union that then ran for power and sort of unexpectedly won in 2010 and took over the union. So this woman, Karen Lewis, who some of your listeners have probably heard of, was the president of the union, but there's a whole organized group of people behind her called the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators that really came up with this model that now has been replicated across the U.S., 
where they sort of cut back the budget for, you know, staff salaries and spent it instead on hiring organizers and doing internal organizing, but also external facing organizing with like the parents in the community, um, putting out research papers. So they put out this famous report called The School Chicago Students Deserve, where they made the argument that their working conditions are their students' learning conditions, right? These are all things that we've now all heard, right? But this is where they started. And that's where they've been, you know, replicated over and over again since then to, to say that, you know, the teachers cannot actually continue to do more with less. They actually need resources. They need smaller class sizes. They need to have textbooks on the first day of school. Like that was actually a thing that the Chicago teachers won in their 2012 strike, along with enough toilet paper. Wow. <laughs> I just mean the fact that that even has to be a thing that yeah. is being fought for mm-hmm. in current times. I, I do find quite shocking, actually. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. shocking. Um, so I've kind of got another question as well. So yeah. at the moment, part of part of what I'm doing is um, around cultural capital. So mm-hmm. our um, uh, Ofsted, they're called, which are the inspectors yeah. of, of UK schools, um, have introduced a bit on their new framework around kind of cultural capital. Mm-hmm. So the idea being that it's certainly for students like in the school that I teach at, which do come from quite deprived areas mm-hmm. um, where they're not necessarily being exposed to this idea of what cultural capital is. Yeah. Um, I just wondered in terms of like kind of what your feelings were around that, because it's interesting when you talk about journalism and you talk about going into a a newsroom or a press room where, you know, people are ultimately very well to do because of the people that can afford Mm -hmm. the unpaid internships and their kind of idea of what culture is. Mm -hmm. And actually, how much do you think that... Um, that schools are trying to almost emulate this this kind of idea of the culture being very white, very kind of imperialist mm-hmm. kind of culture. And I just wondered, like, what your thoughts were on yeah. that, really. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I haven't heard about programs like this before, so I'm like, hmm. But right, I mean, the, the sort of thing that the schools are doing now is, right, is all, like, job preparation, right? Yeah. So you're trying to prepare kids to go out in the workforce, but then, like, what does it look like to, like, be in the workforce? What does it look like to be successful is, like, you have to sort of have a certain set of behaviors and performances and skills of like interacting in different worlds and so you're teaching them that but then you're also sort of teaching them that like the culture that they have has no value yeah and that is really depressing right because like your students probably have all sorts of fascinating things that like would benefit newsrooms or something else to have them in them but instead we're like no 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 you have to go look like what's his face on the bbc right mm. you have to like behave and if you are a student of color if you come from a working class background you have to like do more work in order to fit that thing yeah it's interesting and god yeah because there's this other book i read by an author called um sorry writer called natiola mm-hmm. um and she she's written for the guardian and a few other places and she kind of makes a comment about um imposter syndrome so this idea that actually um is imposter syndrome actually something that's medicalized or is it something that that because we tell students from a young age that there's only there's one certain way you should be and that when they enter these workplaces and it doesn't reflect them um you know, is it actually a case of are we now as educators being told to promote this one ideology, this one way of being? Um, and that ultimately, yeah, do you say like working class culture, right. people of color, like yeah. that their culture is inherently not fit for right. purpose? Right. And like imposter syndrome, right? It's always like told to us, it's like, oh, you have imposter syndrome. That's like you just have like low self esteem and you've just got to like magically get more of it or something, right? And especially it's told to women and mm. it's told to working class people. It's told to like anybody who doesn't look like 
I don't know my, my cultural references are still so American. So I'm just like, you know, thinking like Tom Brokaw, but like whatever the version of that is, it's like the nightly news presenter on the BBC, right? If you don't look like that, if you don't sound like that, then like you are in the wrong place. And so you will feel like that. And I, I touch on a little bit on the panel about like figuring out how to sort of carve out space for yourself and having to fight for it a little bit and to say that like, I actually deserve to be in this space. Um, one of my favorite things to do now that I have like a little bit of career security is kind of just like when people start, you know, being really pretentious about something, just look them in the eye and be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Who's that? that? <laughs> what? Um, because it's just funny because they're just like, oh, well, you're supposed to like play along with all that. I'm just like, mm, no, sorry. What? And I, I think there is, uh, a, you know, a, a moral imperative upon educators to start asking those questions of our peers and superiors when we see them uh, acting out these, you know, hegemonic ideas which are ultimately yeah. going to oppress and harm our students. We right. need to ask them. Exactly. Why would you even do that? Why would you think that way? Why is this your policy? And they will squirm and they will struggle to yeah. even justify everything mm -hmm. that they are. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a, that's a really good topic for us to cover. Yeah. I did want to just return briefly to... Um, <laughs> sorry, something just fell off the wall in our clearly held together with gaffer tape studio, but it's not mission critical, so we're just going to carry on as if that didn't happen. Um, so, Sarah, I've, I've read the, uh, the core handbook, which is the Congress of Rank-and-File Educators from the Chicago uh, Teachers Union, the CTU, um, now, one thing I like about your journalism is that you are uh, you are actually on the floor. You're you're doing the gumshoe reporting where you're <laughs> going out with people and just observing what yeah. they do. Yeah. Because I know, yeah, you did a nice bit of coverage for us when we were going out door knocking for the election yep. and stuff like that. It was but fun. I, I, I specifically wanted to ask you, what is it that the American teachers are doing to build connections with their local communities? Yeah. both inside and outside of school. What have you seen most effective in what the CTU is doing out yeah, there? Yeah, I think one of the things that CTU and the United Teachers Los Angeles and others who have, have sort of taken up this model is they are, I mean, first of all, they're they're recognizing that like their conditions in the schools are a demand that the parents and the students already have. And so you can connect really effectively with parents by saying like, look, I've got 40 kids in this classroom and I can't teach your kid effectively if I've got 40 kids in this classroom because I can't give anybody individual attention. And these issues are like small class sizes is the number one thing that is really, really working to get parents and students on side. Um, but the other thing is just looking around at the neighborhood and saying like, what are the, what are the issues that affect our students outside of the classroom? What are the issues that are happening? You know, they, they fought about school closures, which is an obvious one, but also in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, which is poorer and blacker than the rest of the city, there was no level one trauma center at any of the hospitals in a place that's got more violence, right? So you would have, you know, people, kids in many cases, right, dying because they got a wound that could have been treatable, but they had to be taken halfway across the city in an ambulance. So there was a really big organizing campaign that the CTU and others helped support to get a level one trauma center at the University of Chicago Hospital because the University of Chicago is like this big expensive school that produced a bunch of right-wing economists that is like in this little enclave within um, the south side of Chicago. It's in like Hyde Park and like, you know, it's like 
five blocks of like rich white people and the university and then everything else around it is the rest of the south side of Chicago. So they had this big, long fight to actually open up a trauma center there to say like this is this is important for our students lives. Um, they talk about all these things explicitly as a racial justice issue, because, again, like in places like Chicago, the public schools are the, the city's are disproportionately black and Latino in the U S anyway. But then in the public schools in those cities, something like 90% of like the Los Angeles students are students of color. 90% of the city of Los Angeles is not black or Brown. Right. But it is, I mean, it is an incredibly diverse city and the teachers had like students who spoke 46 languages in their classrooms. You know, it's amazing. But like they, um, understand that like the parents who sort of could have already fled the public school system. And so what you get is like segregation, you know, by another name, right? It's, it's, that's what it looks like. And so they have to understand this is like, we need curriculum that is relevant for our kids. We need to teach them again, speaking of cultural capital, right? one of the big fights in Chicago, LA, um, was like ethnic studies curriculum to say, we want to teach these kids about their own history, not just like white people's history, but teach them about the places that they are from and to teach them about the culture that they have that is worth something. And that you can, like, you don't have to leave your community behind in order to be sort of successful. Um, so those kinds of fights, I think, are really, really important to understand where you live and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and then there's just stuff like free school breakfast for like kids who are literally coming to school hungry, right? That, you know, these are, again, these are things that the teacher in the classroom is not necessarily directly dealing with, but they both make it easier for the kids to actually be able to show up and learn. And also they like take the responsibility that teachers are given for the well-being of these kids very, very seriously. And so, you know, normally when teachers go on strike, the first argument is like, you don't care about the kids. How dare you make demands for yourself? You don't care. And so they have really taken that and turned it around and been like, we actually are striking because we care. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the things I think, um, that maybe the NEU sometimes does wrong is that we only start to set up those networks and really encourage and support like members like locally to yeah create that that yeah that wealth build that that sort of sense um that we're all in it together once we've already decided what the campaign is and once we've already voted on it and that needs to be happening all the time and I don't think we, we try, but I don't think we're doing it all the time. It's only when we decide, oh, we're going to boycott the SATs, and then suddenly we need to make sure the parents are on board with this. But by then it's too late. By then it's, it's yeah. yeah it's, it's the it's, ball's already it's, way it's, rolling it's, down the Yeah, downhill. it's not reflexive to, to the conditions on the ground, and yeah. therefore it's not strategic. Right. You know, and that right. links to a number of other contributions. That's why I think this, yeah. this is going to complement some of the other interviews we've done really yeah. well, because well, it's about yeah. thinking about trade union strategy. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you end up you end up doing sort of mobilizing ahead of an action, the same way you do like mobilizing ahead of an election, right? Where it's like, we've got to like quick get out and do this, and, and but it's not actually organizing. So you're not actually like building these roots day after day and week after week so that you actually have that to draw upon in the same way, right? Now, I mean, I just want to touch on one point that you raised, that, yeah. that there are things happening outside the classroom that classroom teachers might not necessarily be in directly affected by or directly right. in control of. Right. But that is the key difference that I see in the Chicago Teachers Union, yeah. because classroom teachers are, in effect, taking responsibility for those things, mm -hmm. because that is the focus of their activism, that, that's the focus of their organising, yeah. in that, that, that they, you know, and, and, and it's only through 
that rank and file mm-hmm. action yeah. by ordinary yeah. teachers. They're right, not wait, exactly. they're not waiting for a leader. They're not, yeah. they're not waiting for one inspiring figure to rise up and no, go. This is exactly. what we do. Waiting for Superman, as the bad documentary goes. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, <laughs> And would you agree that that's that's what's made the difference in that particular scenario? Yeah, I mean, yeah. what's happening, I talked about this actually a little bit on the strategy panel yesterday, was the UTLA, right? So the Los Angeles School District is just huge. It's 960 square miles. So to build power in that union, they not only had to, um, you know, get the caucus elected by what percentage of whatever people voted, but then they had to create structures for communicating with everybody, you know, day in and day out, week in and week out. So again, they're hearing from and connected to the rank and file teachers who can say like, this is what's going on in my school. This is a problem that we have now. These are the things that we are um, challenged by so that then they can work those into their demands to say that like, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is, whether it's ethnic studies classes or recess or, you know, we need a playground, um, any of those things that you can then say like, okay, we're hearing this from our teachers on the ground. They're, this is the experience that they're having from their students. This is what they're hearing from the kids. You know, um, in my, my, the book that I just finished writing, oh my God, um, I, I, my teacher's chapter is based in Los Angeles with the LA teacher's strike. And um, the woman that I, I focus on is named uh, Rosa Jimenez. And she's, um, she's a teacher. She's a single mom. She teaches high school history. Um, she's amazing. And she does a ton of organizing work in the community alongside her students. So there's this um, excellent student group in L.A. that I'm now blanking on the name of, which is driving me nuts. Um because they they do amazing, amazing work. We'll pop, um, we'll pop a link to the description. Yeah, I'll send in, you a piece because actually yeah. one of them, um, I helped her write a piece for Teen Vogue about it, which is great. Uh, her name is Marche Das. I remember her. Why am I blanking on the group's name? Anyway, Marche is amazing. And I will send along a link so you can also, link to her uh, piece. Teen, Teen Vogue has been going up in my estimation. Teen in Vogue recent. is great. Yeah. Teen Vogue is great. A friend of mine is the editor there, so she does great work. So it was like, you should have one of these teens write a piece because she's brilliant. Um, but yeah, so Rosa does all this organizing in the community alongside all of these students um and so she's very much in touch with again not just the experience that they bring to her classroom where she's talking about history but also the experience that like they have when they're organizing their neighborhoods against you know the cops stopping and frisking them or a big one in LA was um to stop random searches in the schools um because you know and the teachers realize that like by making them sort of responsible for like essentially stopping and frisking the kids in the hallway you're destroying the relationship that you actually need to have with the kids in order to teach them mm-hmm. I was going to ask, um, yeah, because it sounds like there's been yeah so many like um, amazing like achievements from different different unions across America. America's enormous, obviously. It's way, 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 way bigger than America's the UK. America's enormous. Um, so you've got Chicago, you've got yeah West Virginia, and all, all these different places, and they 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 support each other, from my understanding. But they, as a, as a single state, as I understand it, they have kind of like a sort of standard condition, a standard like rate of pay that they must fluctuate somewhat between individual teachers but it's like set at a certain thing so you can um track the conditions in different states be like they've got it good they've not got it good they've mm-hmm. got it really really bad yeah. and, so that, and so you're you're only having to and i say only i know it's still very very difficult but i sort of think to myself how like how can we use it but how can, um what what has been done in the u.s but also where 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 is it different like when we do things as the NEU, we've got, I think, 550,000 or 500,000 members or something like that, which is a lot. 
and you know when we ball- ballot we ballot as as an entire country but we're so varied you know like mm-hmm. the conditions right the yeah pay. exactly even within like london for example gets as standard five grand more as a starting than than everywhere else in the country so but costs more but it'll you know uh, so we're not we're not fighting the same battles it sometimes mm-hmm. feels like sometimes yeah. it feels like there are there are so many union members who just have it have nice schools that have mm-hmm. you know really good catchment areas and just avoided all the horror of it whereas like you say like the with the voucher systems the fact that the way that the private private schools kind of work in america means that it is very much it's almost a, a uniformly like shit conditions so they can all yeah, like sit even, together but yeah. where, where, that feels like an excuse but whereas whereas how does that play in? But where are the limits of that? How can we still... So I think one of the things, like the, I, I go back to LA being so huge a lot because there is a big disparity across even LA, even when we're talking about the fact that most of the kids in LA public schools are working class kids of color. Um, there's still disparity. There are still teachers that I spoke to like in the Valley, which is pretty far out. It's not anywhere close to like living in the city. It is basically being in the suburbs. Um, their conditions are very different than the kids who are in South Central LA, Right. Um, and that's, that's the reality, right? The kids in South Central LA are organizing Black Lives Matter groups and the kids in the Valley are, are doing something totally different. Then you've got like magnet schools, you've got super different conditions. Then you've got places like Massachusetts where the statewide, um, teachers union, which also includes higher ed, which is not always the case in all these places, um, so the Massachusetts Teachers Association represents teachers and university professors across the state of Massachusetts, basically except for Boston. Um, so Boston has its own union, which is part of the AFT, and the MTA is part of the NEA. The AFT and the NEA are the two big education unions in the U.S. And there's a really great book called Blackboard Unions by Marjorie, what is her last name? I'm sorry, I'm forgetting everything right now. Blackboard <laughs> Unions is the title of the book, and it traces the history of the development of these two different unions and the way that they grew up very differently um, over, you know, 100 years but so the MTA represents teachers and Massachusetts is sort of the state that has pretty regularly on tests anyway, like the best schools in the U.S. Um, I went to Massachusetts public schools for a little while and then I moved to South Carolina. And let me tell you, it was different. Um, and no wonder they vote for Biden. <laughs> so in, I, don't. <laughs> I mean, they both did, actually. Um, Biden won both Massachusetts oh, and South shit, Carolina. Sorry. Uh, um, right, they're both canceled. Yeah. So, so um, the Boston suburbs, right? A lot of the Boston suburbs are quite white and quite well off. Um, and like Newton is like the you know number one or number two in the state. But they had union activists who got involved in the caucus in Massachusetts was called EDU. And I can't talk about the MTA without like pausing for a second and, and remembering Dan Clausen, who was a labor sociologist, a founding member of EDU, a professor at UMass Amherst a friend who passed away um, a little under a year ago and he was really wonderful and I'm very sad that he did not make it to see a lot of the things that have happened in the last year. But um, so Dan and a handful of other people founded this union. They were reaching out between higher ed and K through 12 um, and they were trying to connect teachers from places like Newton who have a certain set of complaints with mostly well-off white kids to places like Holyoke, which is like a really poor place with the conditions are much closer to um, 
most of it to a lot of LA or Chicago and where the schools are like failing. And then they're facing these sort of no child left behind mandated like government takeovers, which basically just fire a bunch of teachers. So they, in, in taking over the Massachusetts union, they had to do a lot of this kind of work, right. Of figuring out like, okay, the teachers here have this complaint and the teachers here have this complaint and the teachers here have this complaint. And how do we bring that all together? And I'm actually thinking about the UCU strike now, right. That like they keep calling it the four fights. Yeah. And so to say that, like, we don't have not everybody is going to have every single one of these as like a top priority. But what are sort of the the, you know, things that you can have like four five, six, seven topics that might be, you know, relatable, like in the U.S., right? Standardized testing is a big one. And that's true whether you're in Newton or you're in Holyoke, but for different reasons, it becomes a problem. Right. In in the white suburbs, you're more likely to have like super overachiever kids whose parents are really obsessed with them getting test scores. And so the kids are like super stressed because they're expected to do everything. Whereas like the kids in, you know, a place like Holyoke or Springfield might not have eaten breakfast the morning of the test. Um, but the test is still this thing that you're like it actually no matter whether we're in one of these schools or another you still have this annoying thing that you have to deal with that, that you are expected to teach the test and it takes up your instructional time and ruins your life. So I think, yeah, the question of like finding what the issues are, um, Massachusetts, they had a fight about a statewide ballot initiative that would have raised the cap for charter schools, which I guess are similar to what you call academies over here, right? Where you get public funds going to private organizations. And so the MTA organized around that statewide with a coalition um, and defeated this ballot initiative. And so it wasn't a strike. Um, it wasn't like a, a workplace fight, but it was a fight that allowed the union to express its power as a union. And then this past year, um, teachers in Dedham, which I lived in for the first eight years of my life, went on a totally illegal strike in Massachusetts because the, they do not have the legal right to strike. Um, and they went out and they won in two days. Um, in fact, Barbara told me that they probably won in one day, but they uh, like held out because they could, essentially. Um, yeah, because they had been building this power across the state. And so, you know, they the the administrators in Dedham are basically getting phone calls from like other towns in Massachusetts going, you better settle with your teachers now because we don't want this happening here. You need to do this and you need to cut it off. Like we don't want our teachers getting any ideas. So, you know, when you build that kind of power statewide, you can still win these sort of individual fights um, with the backup and the same thing with across the country, right? That if you build this power within the union, um, that you build solidarity in this way that you know, yeah, you can then use it in a variety of ways, understanding that like the fights aren't going to be the same everywhere, but they're connected everywhere. And that puts it really well. So the, <laughs> the fight starts yesterday, basically. Yeah, doesn't it always? <laughs> Working on it. Definitely. Oh, that was that wasn't really 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 enjoyable. I like Thank that you we've so just much. Yeah, got the applause. Perfect in the audio. <laughs> Absolutely right. Thank you so much. Thank Sarah. you. It's been amazing. Um, we've been, uh, I've been Charlie. We've had Lauren. Uh, I've been Lee. Yeah, thank you for listening. Cheers, guys. <laughs>